0: It is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule.
1: Welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we prepare you for Amazon's big-budget adaptation of the Legendarium by talking about prior adaptations of Tolkien's works explaining the characters and plots we may see depicted, and keeping you up to date on the latest news and rumors.
0: On today's pod, we're going to bring you up to speed on the latest rumors about the show and Amazon's marketing efforts, some drama in the Tolkien fandom, and then our main topic, will Amazon introduce the enigmatic and mysterious blue wizards in the show?
1: I'm so excited for this topic, Jenna. I just have to tell you, I've been, I've been chomping at the bits talking about the blue the- wizards.
0: Me too, Michael. Me too.
1: And I also like that we're basically going to become just a gossip rag for the Tolkien community. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it well, first here. <laughs> well, folks, if you like what we're doing here, please do us a big favor and subscribe, rate, share us with your friends on social media. Doing that will help other Tolkien's fan, Tolkien fans to find us, and uh, we would really appreciate it. It'd be doing us a, a big solid. Um, so I am joined today by your host. Jen Gallagher, aka Goldberry, the River Daughter.
0: Ooh, and I am joined by Michael Rowland, aka Treebeard.
1: Oh, oh, oh. so now Wait, you have to do light. your
0: Treebeard voice the whole episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I didn't uh, drink enough honey and lemon tea to prepare. <laughs>
0: I just tried to do it.
1: I just tried to do a tree beard voice, but I ended up doing a Jabba the Hutt voice by accident. Oh, 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 oh. (laughs) Oh, not (laughs) not the same.
0: We will often (laughs) mix genres because we are nerdy like that.
1: Well, let's uh, let's jump in.
0: Yeah, we're gonna do a quick fact check. Um, last week, I mentioned that Tolkien translated a book of the Bible, and I was mistaken. Uh, it was not the Book of Revelation. Tolkien actually translated the Book of Jonah in the Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic translation of the Bible. Um, he was asked to do so by a priest, and so he, yeah, he translated the Book of Jonah, which I think is just really interesting
1: yeah it's always fascinating to me to see his you know contributions to other you know to his non-legendarium I, I just read his legendarium stuff and i forget sometimes that he was a legitimate academic that had a huge impact uh, in a variety of fields um, right he so. was
0: uh he was a philologist and he obviously was familiar with greek and hebrew which is um what the books of the bible were uh translated from so uh yeah a man of many many talents
1: So I have a quick fact check as well. Some of you may remember two episodes ago, we started our two-part series uh, reviewing the 1977 animated adaptation of The Hobbit by Rankin-Bass, which was a lot of fun. And in the first episode, uh, first of those two parts, I mentioned that Bilbo was voiced by Orson Bean. And when describing Orson Bean's career, I said he was, you know, uh, sort of a journeyman actor, not a big star just kind of a, a well-known actor, and my mom texted me after the episode came out, and she's like, "Orson Bean was a star." <laughs> she she made sure to correct me. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. So, and that just reinforces the point I was trying to make in that uh, episode, which is that they got some legitimate actors, and um, I guess getting Orson Bean was a bigger get than I realized. So, uh, for all you young guns who had no idea who Orson Bean was in the first place, now you know he was a superstar.
0: That's right. Well, Michael, I mean, you know, we're we're elder millennials now and we part our bangs to the side. So Gen Z has been hating on us. They can hate on us, you know, and we and the older generations continue to hate on the younger generations. Well, you
1: might part your bangs to the side. I don't really have bangs anymore or hair of any kind, really. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I kind of like the I like the phrase elder millennials. You know, it makes me think of the elder days. And in,
0: in we are the legendarium.
1: <laughs> yeah, we are the elder. Yeah, there we go. We're the elder millennials. <laughs> I'm you know, you glad go-
0: People aren't blaming us for partying on well, people did blame us for partying on beaches in Florida. But I think now Gen Z is like, hey, you old millennials, stop, you know, making your aging yourselves. So, you know, I'll and- be the
1: elder. Gen Z can be the Adane. That is that is a fair compromise. I love it. Well, we're going to talk about some new stuff today. Uh, we're going to get into some of the, some, you know, we're going to do kind of a rumor mill roundup. You know, there's a lot of, not a ton of show leaks right now, not a ton of confirmed rumors, but there's a lot of rumors. And there's a lot of uh, people in the Tolkien community are getting excited. And um, there there are new fan sites popping up, new YouTube channels. There's just a lot going on. And so I think something that we want to it's do lit. on this show, it's, <laughs> are you sure you're not Generation Z? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm trying to stay relevant, Michael. <laughs>
1: uh, I'm going to have to practice some of these uh, relevant phrases that the kids use in advance. I, I, <laughs> it's just not going to work for me. But uh, we're going to try to make a point to keep you up to date on what's going on in the Tolkien community. You know, among amongst the fans. I mean, this is a really robust and vibrant community. A lot of good folks um, who are producing a lot of, I mean, great fan art. Um, uh, you know, there's musicians who's producing, who are producing stuff. There are, uh, academics and there's scholarly works being created. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. We're going to try and do our best to sort of give you a little roundup and summarize what's been going on in the last week. Um, sometimes it's serious. Sometimes it's just gossip and rumors, but we're going to have fun. Keep giving you the skinny. Is is that a phrase that kids use? The skinny? Mm.
0: <laughs> I'll allow it.
1: Maybe in the 1950s. That was what the kids said. <laughs> Well, the first uh, piece of news that we wanted to give you is uh, there is a, a fan site called uh, Fellowship of the Fans. They got a Twitter page, they got a YouTube channel, and they're relatively new. Um, I think they've been around for a couple months. And they kind of make it their business to publish confirmed rumors. And so they, they really go out of their way to, at the start of every video, say, hey, this is all confirmed. We've checked it and double checked it. And so I think they're a good source for confirmed news about the show, uh, they are pretty dedicated to news related to the show. So, um, I've been watching some of their videos recently and they've, they've broken, there's not a ton of news to break right now, but they have had some good, interesting information. And one of the recent videos, uh, a week or two ago, they confirmed that episodes one through three of the first season are fully filmed and are currently in post-production. And they are already uh, a few weeks into filming episode four. So, that gives us a good idea of how far along in the process they are. Obviously, there's still a ways to go before they finish the first season. But, you know, they they are rolling right along and they're going to be close to halfway done with that first season pretty soon.
0: Wow, that's so exciting. Um, from the videos that I've seen on their channel, it looks like they've got somebody in New Zealand. I'm not sure precisely where they get their intel, but it looks like they have it on good authority. Um that from somebody who is actually there um it's so all this information is vetted by you know eyewitness accounts or close to so yeah like again they're a really reliable source and it's so exciting to get leaks from them because they're just being so tight-lipped about this show that we will take any little kernel of Updates that we can get.
1: Right. Um, And, you know, I hope, I I can't speak from any sort of personal knowledge that what they're telling us is true, but, you know, fellowship of the fans, they do make a point to say that they have confirmed it. So we'll take their word for it. For now, you know, maybe they'll, maybe it's just a guy in his basement uh, making up rumors and we're all just uh, falling for it. But for now, I think- We will um,
0: take it. We'll take it. I'm taking
1: it. I'm taking it.
0: (laughs) I'm taking it. And from the same source, a really exciting update, Uh, this really got me fired up, is that an Undisclosed female director is filming and working on episodes five, six, and probably episode seven. So she has been on set touring locations and consulting with the art department since February eighth. So since early February. Um, I have some guesses and I have suggestions, Amazon, on you know, who you could hire in the future if you want a female director.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Amazon executives, if you're listening. Call me.
0: Uh, or text me or TikTok me, whatever the kids do. Um, oh, TikTok.
1: See, you are Generation <laughs> Z. What is going on here?
0: <laughs> just I can't get over this criticism with the bangs. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> All right. So here's my guesses. And I'm just going to give you a couple. And Michael, feel free to chime in. So my guesses are Patty Jenkins And she is really hot right now for having directed Wonder Woman, the 2017 version, uh, Mm -hmm. and the film Monster, which is just a phenomenal movie. Um, Right. I think that she would be a really smart choice for a couple different reasons. One being Wonder Woman, you know, has this fantastical element. It's Marvel. It's superheroes. And I think that... It's you know it was obviously a big budget film there was a lot of pressure and and you know I have my criticisms of the film but I do think that she delivered in a lot of ways and so um I think she would be a logical choice for entrusting a project of this magnitude
1: and, um, and so she did the original one Wonder Woman not the, the most not recent the, one or did she not do both the
0: mo- I'm I don't I don't believe she did both. I believe she only did the twenty seventeen version.
1: Okay. And I think so th- that was probably the better of the two.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Um my second guess is a gal named Jennifer Lee, who is a part of a, a team that actually directed Frozen. She also has co written A Wrinkle in Time, which is um a very charming adaptation of the book. Um, once again, another I
1: have- fantasy, uh, you know, standard, exactly. standard in the fantasy universe. Yep,
0: exactly. And there's a connection here because um, we know that there have been. Uh, Disney and Pixar employees who have been hired by Amazon, and we'll get to that later. But you have to assume that some of these folks that have been brought onto the Amazon team would have had, have a relationship with Jennifer Lee. So that is, that is one of my guesses. And um, yeah, that's a good
1: reason to think that she might've been brought over, like at an early stage, you know, because the people who were involved in developing the show might've known her. There's that connection was already made. So it would make sense to port her over, especially when she was associated with a successful, a franchise in Frozen, albeit in an animated franchise. It's I, I assume that's a different set of skills, a different type of experience to, to direct an animated film as opposed to uh, a large live action show.
0: I'm sure yeah I'm sure it's a it's a different beast but then again you know people have been given opportunities with less know-how and credentials um, than she has and she's been around for a while um, <laughs> like the
1: showrunners of the, of the show like the, uh, yeah
0: exactly <laughs> I mean I'm just I'm so thrilled that they're getting a woman on board to direct and we get the female perspective It's it's well documented that women in Hollywood do not get their due and so I'm mm-hmm. so glad that these showrunners have have chosen to to give a a a female director a shot at this Um, and so my third my third choice slash guess is Catherine Bigelow, and she has done a couple very notable films, Zero Dark Thirty being my favorite. I think that is just an amazing film, edge of your seat. Very action-packed, but also very thoughtful um, dialogue-wise, and that's really what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in the dialogue and the relationships, and I think that film explores both very well. Um, she also did The Hoy- the Hurt Locker and Point Great Drake. movie. Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah, I, I had to I had to point that out that she did Point Break because I don't think people really re- remember that. I mean, Point Break came out a long time ago, and it's like a cult classic. It's an awesome movie, and she directed that. I don't think people remember that. And then, you know, she kind of, I don't want to say she fell off the radar, but I wasn't really aware of her. And then she exploded again when she did The Hurt Locker uh, because it won some Oscars. Uh, but, yeah, she did Hurt Locker. You know, we got to see OG Kurt Russell, Keanu Reeves.
0: That's right. And the I mean, if she's involved with Kurt Russell, maybe he'll make you know, maybe he'll well, make Well, and remember
1: <laughs> Remember Point Break had a lot of surfing scenes, a lot of ocean stuff. <gasps> oh Numenor's my goodness, Menorah's an it island, all there's gotta be ocean sense.
0: Yep. It's all I mean, I think she would be a smart choice because she represents in my mind the marriage of, you know, action and character development that we've talked about on this show before, and that's really what we want to see out of this show um so those are zero dark
1: 30 and hurt locker both had a they were quote unquote sort of action films in the sense that they had to do they were set in uh in an action sort of environment you know zero dark 30 having to do with the planning and uh execution of the assassination of osama bin laden and hurt locker being sort of a war movie but they weren't empty vapid Battle scene focused movies. There was no,
0: they the weren't tension shoot em up in films those shows at all.
1: No, they were focused on the internal tension, the internal struggles of the characters. And I think that is the perfect type of perspective to bring to this show because there is going to be yes. a battle military component. But I think that in order to get Tolkien right, you don't want to get too sidetracked with the shoot 'em up aspect.
0: That's right. That's right. If it's all action and they sacrifice the plot, we're going to be unhappy campers on this show. Um, so so those are my guesses. Now I'm going to just throw some curveballs about who I'd actually love to see. Uh who I don't know if this would happen or not, but I've got uh, two female directors that I really love and who I think are particularly relevant right now. One is Sarah Polly. She is a Canadian gal. Um, she directed one of my absolute favorite shows on Netflix. It's a it's a mini series called Alias Grace, uh, which is an adaptation of a Margaret Atwood novel, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Just one of my one of, I've watched it like three times. Um, so she she really stays out of the spotlight, and she's done. A documentary. She's done a couple other films that have been um they're less recognizable, but super talented and thoughtful and obviously great at adapting literature. So um I I just love her. I'd love to see her involved in some capacity. Um the second one I have is Rengano Neoni. I hope I pronounced that right. Um she I think she she's relatively unknown. She she garnered a lot of recognition at Sundance for a film called I Am Not a Witch. And, um, I would just love to see a person of color kind of plucked from obscurity and given this shot, you know, we, as you mentioned before, Mm, these showrunners are really unknown. And so I'd love if they continued with that theme and just kind of brought somebody in and gave them a chance who was not a household name far from it.
1: Yeah. Someone who's young and hungry and full of talent, um, ready to make their mark. I mean, that's exactly the type of person and energy I think you'd want involved in this kind of show. Mm -hmm. so I I had a couple ideas Uh, my first I don't think this is actually a good fit but uh, Sofia Coppola you know she did Lost in Translation so she'll always be really high up on my list of directors (laughs) Uh, you know I I, I don't think that you know Lost in Translation is a very different type of movie from what the Lord of the Rings show is probably going to be but I like her work so I I kind of put her on the list it's
0: a very thoughtful film
1: yeah. Um, one that I thought was maybe a little more likely because she's so hot right now is <laughs> Greta Gerwig. So she directed Lady Bird, which got a lot of buzz. Great film. And Little Women, uh, the, the most recent adaptation, which also got a lot of buzz, uh, was kind of divisive. And it I'm was. just going to stop talking and let Jen yeah. go to okay. town on I, this selection. Well, li-
0: Here's the thing. I like Greta Gerwig. I loved Lady Bird. I love, you know, Frances Ha. I love her previous works. I think she's smart. I All that being said, I don't think she'd be a good choice for this series at all uh, based on what she did with Little Women. I am a really big fan of Little Women and I just I this is such an unpopular opinion but it, it must be said I did not like her adaptation. I thought it was extremely modern. I thought it was extremely heavy-handed and it i was very disappointed and again not a lot of people (laughs) share my opinion um and that's okay but i think we're dealing with a series where it's not a period film right because it's fictional but i want it to have the feeling of a period film the commitment in the uh, of a period film and i just don't think i think she does modern very well and i don't think she did um I don't think she did justice to little women and what the author intended. Um, mm. even though it was a valiant attempt. <laughs> that sounded really good. A, cre- I mean, a
1: creative <laughs> attempt, right? Very creative, very Creatives. thoughtful. Um
0: I, I thought, well, yeah, I just I, I just had problems with the script. You're not having I any had of problems it. You're not- <laughs> it was like a sledgehammer. It was like a it was a sledgehammer. I don't know how, how I could go off on yeah. this subject, but I won't. Um Greta love you, but no. Just not yeah, I, I, I mean, I
1: guess it's fair to say we don't really have we haven't seen any evidence of her adapting a period film, a true period film, and staying committed to the period aspect of the period film. I mean, Little exactly. Women is a period piece, but she updated it, and that was a, a, a very intentional and deliberate uh, move on her part when adapting it. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I don't think it would work for Lord of the Rings. I'd be very, very scared to see someone try, and I wouldn't want to see someone try. I would fear for their safety
0: <laughs> with this rabid fan base. <laughs>
1: So I would say, of all the people that we've just discussed, I, I think probably the best fit, um, yeah, probably the best fit would be Patty Jenkins, um, Catherine Bigelow being a close second. But Patty Jenkins is, you know, having done Wonder Woman, she knows how to handle a big franchise. How to, uh, mm. you know, Wonderwood, Wonder Woman is an adaptation of, uh, I would, you know, I would put comic book uh, materials in the fantasy genre you know, an adaptation of an existing uh, fantasy work that has built in fandom um, that had a lot of expectations and she navigated that pretty well. Um, And at the same time she did monster, which is a very dark movie. So, you know, she's able to take on dark subject matter, which I think a second age tale is going to be very, very dark. So I think she's got all the skills necessary and she is in the right place in her career. She's kind of on the Hollywood radar in a way that makes it not only likely that she would be the pick, but also probably a good pick. So uh, that's I think kind a of good pick as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the aesthetic, at least again, didn't. I wasn't wild about Wonder Woman, but I thought the aesthetic was very cool. I thought it moved along pretty well, and obviously, Monster. Wow, what a groundbreaking film! Mm-hmm. I mean, Charlize Theron. Oh, I uh, I was speechless. It's such a good film. Um, yeah. In terms of character development and intensity, so yes, that would be a fantastic choice
1: well this has been fun speculation but we are just totally (laughs) just pulling it out of our asses oh yeah
0: wild (laughs) speculation here don't take any of this as you know gospel truth
1: yeah yeah this isn't even a rumor this is just just speculating uh but it's fun to speculate um so another piece of news and this was reported by deadline is that um amazon has hired a new global head of franchise marketing a guy named greg coleman and he will start on march 1st now in his new role greg coleman will lead amazon's marketing team dedicated to fantasy and sci-fi originals for both series and films um, so in that role uh, coleman and his team will create marketing campaigns and spearhead global expansion of fantasy and sci-fi brands including the upcoming the lord of the rings series so we now have a guy who's in charge of marketing, which means hopefully that sometime in the near future, once they have put their plan together, we are going to start seeing a marketing push, um, which is is interesting, um, but he has an interesting background as well.
0: I can't wait. Right. That's right. So previously at Walt Disney Animation Studios, where he most recently served as VP worldwide marketing and franchise management. Um, while at Disney, he worked, he's most well known for working on Frozen and Frozen 2, which are the top two animated films in history. That's pretty wild. So before Disney, he was at MGM Studios. And no matter what you think of Frozen, love it, hate it, it was so successful. Who, who hates it, Frozen?
1: Who hates well, Frozen?
0: people have criticisms of Frozen, Um But I I think you I think their marketing strategy in particular, since we're talking about marketing, was very smart um, because they really didn't play up the two princesses aspect. Of course that's not what the film is about, but if they were to depict, oh, these two sisters, princesses, I think people would get the wrong idea. Instead, in a short period of time, like a trailer, they they fixated on um the the very diverse cast and this cute little snowman and yes, the the two sisters were in these trailers and the different posters, but they they brought in um, you know, the comedic aspects of the film and different interesting characters the little trolls. Um, so I think the marketing strategy was very much a strategy. They thought about like, what is this film actually doing? It's redefining the princess trope in a new and fresh way. And so how do we market that without um, saying with, you know, show don't tell. And I, I think it was very successful. So I, I'm well, excited so to sounds see like what it does. It
1: sounds like they marketed it by not, not highlighting that fact and kind of hooking people with the, the cute you know kid-friendly aspects and and not covering that yeah, and the deeper funnier, element
0: well yeah yeah i mean it was there but it definitely um i think they were trying to highlight the fact that this isn't a film about princesses you know being rescued mm-hmm. um and and i think they were pretty effective at that uh based on the box office results of this movie. So this right. is, a, I'm I'm excited that uh, Coleman's coming on because he he's clearly had success and um I'm I'm real I don't know about you but I'm hungry to get some uh just some some marketing anything <laughs> what's the you know what's yeah, the logo g- just give me be? a
1: taste uh, you know I'm Jones in over here yeah yeah <laughs> I'm in over here give me a taste I want a taste <laughs> yeah <I'll>, I mean. <laughs> All I know about Frozen in terms of marketing and really about the movie, I have seen the movie, but, you know, all I really know is that every, like, four-year-old girl everywhere, like, in every country just wants to sing or hear, you know, what is it? Let It Snow or... Let It Go. Whatever. <laughs> Let It Go, yeah. Let It Sings Go. Sings Let It Go on repeat forever. Ugh. I've so heard that song catchy. so many times. catchy, I know, it's, I know. It's a very good song. It's a very good song. It's, it's I'm not catchy. Gonna hate on it.
0: I'll give it that. I'll give it that.
1: But, that, yeah, they knew how to push that <laughs> that stuff really well. Yeah, I mean, I don't really um, – I'm glad they got somebody who clearly has a background and, and knows what he's doing. The thing that's most exciting about this update is that, you know, we are going to start seeing something from Amazon shortly. And I've just been dying to see something. They've been starving us out here, um, you know, just giving us little snippets that, you know, their Twitter account is barren they're not even trying to tease us right now they're giving us nothing and nothing. so i'll be excited it's,
0: they're being smart they in their marketing strategy because we're just devouring any little thing yeah. that comes our well, way
1: i think it, you know in a way maybe it is deliberate because they have a built-in fandom that is kind of marketing the show on their own you know we're out here producing content their show you know the ring.net and a lot of these other channels are are you know, jazzing up the fan base on their own. So they don't really need to do anything to get us excited. Um, so true. So We're
0: already excited.
1: They're letting us mobilize the troops for them. And then they're going to start leaking out some stuff. Um, so in the vein of marketing, uh, fellowship of the fans put out a video that talked about some marketing results and you can go watch it. It was on February 25th. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, little quotes and stuff that they, that they um, talk about the one piece that i found particularly interesting was this is a quote from apparently from someone at amazon um, that the marketing group has quote identified new social and online analytic needs to support fan focused franchise and long lead anticipation of marketing strategies end quote and the part of that that i found interesting is that they use the phrases fan focused and the word franchise um so which tells me a couple things one that they are focused on the fandom they do I mean how could they not be but I, I want to see fan focused in everything that I hear coming out of Amazon I want them I want to know that they care about the fans um, and the other the, the word franchise is particularly interesting to me because it indicates I think it indicates that they have plans to produce Lord of the Rings content Tolkien content beyond this one show you know a franchise means more than one thing and so we may see spin-offs I hope we'll see spin-offs
0: for days
1: yeah spin-offs for days I mean you know there's 3,000 plus years in the second age they could do spin-offs until I'm you know 100 years old and they wouldn't run out of material so
0: and we'll still be doing um, this show when you're 100 Michael (laughs) (laughs) give us an update
1: still getting criticized for our side part (laughs)
0: Uh. yeah it's super it's super exciting um that they're that they have you know someone dedicated to doing this and um hopefully you know originally there was talk of this show airing in 2021 i'm starting to get skeptical only because i'm like what what's happening um but i have hope that at least we'll get more information um yeah and hopefully accurate information and speaking of Accurate information. <laughs> uh, there were fake reports this week um, by Torn. Dun, on, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And I love this website. Just a quick disclaimer um, that I love. When, we, one- when we say
1: Torn... We mean the OneRing.net.
0: The OneRing.net. I love this site. Um, but on February twenty second, they reported that Ted Ma- Nasmith had joined um, the Amazon's team of creators, and people went absolutely crazy with excitement and started posting all of his art, uh, which is very uh, distinct. And later that day, it got debunked by Tolkien Guide, who contacted. Ted Nasmith directly, um, and tor- Torn later recanted, but not before getting a lot of criticism and flack for being careless about their reports. So, um, I, I, I think this is a case of just someone doing some snooping, um, seeing that there were a lot of Nasmith um, inspirational posters, you know, that Amazon was referencing. Mm-hmm. And then just making a lot of assumptions about what was going on. So it's, it's I, I suppose it was a jump that they made, but I see I see it was an easy mistake.
1: Yeah, so what they, uh, the Wondering.net explained later that they had gotten reports that there were um, pictures uh, that Ted Naismith's art was on the walls in the writer's room and in the Amazon offices. Um, and so from those reports, they assumed that Amazon was hanging those, you know, those posters and that art from Dan Smith with his permission and that he had been formally brought in to be a collaborator and be part of the team. And apparently that's not the case. You know, they had his art up on the wall, but Dan Naismith is not actually officially part of the team. So the OneRing.net made the assumption and just reported it. And uh, But they didn't bother to fact check it beforehand, which, you know, as they got criticized for later, it would have taken five seconds. Um, and they got, I mean, there was, they got a lot of flack from people <laughs> online. People and were I think very it was, mad. <laughs> people were very, very mad. And, you know, I i think some criticism is fair. Uh, very fair because, you know, when you're reporting news, especially when you're talking about a third party, you want to make sure you verify it first if you can. Uh, but I think people were a little too too tough on them. There's, so there was one tweet I got to, I got to read that I thought was, I mean, it's funny. Um, so there's a, uh, Twitter channel called Tolkien Urklart. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But he tweeted, the one, ring.net is like, or the one Ring net is like that weird aunt in your family who thinks she knows everything about conspiracies. But if you ask her where she got the information, she just gets pissed. Just get out and think a while about what she posted. And then they, <laughs> you know, screenshotted a few of uh, Torrin's tweets that ended up being wrong. Uh, and that was just, you know, one of many, just giving them a really hard time. I, you know, I thought it was a little rough you know, we are just talking about a fantasy show. We're all having fun here, and I think the thewondering.net is just—you know—they're posting rumors, things that they've heard. They're not doing real journalism, or at least they haven't. I assume they haven't really approached it that way. Uh, um, it's up just till a now. bummer,
0: though, because it really does. It's a bummer because I think it—you want cred? They, they want credibility, and I think it does interfere with their credibility moving forward however I will still be reading their articles I enjoy them um, I think they're a really thoughtful publications so you know lesson learned and it's a lesson to us all check your facts um, get confirmation before you before you um, promote something
1: yeah and I th- you know I think that everybody in the Tolkien community is probably going to be doing a little bit of a gut check in terms of well, how do we talk about the fandom and the show going forward, knowing that the show is about to cause the number of people who are Tolkien fans and into this material, it's just going to explode. I mean, you know, it's going to be a tenfold increase, a hundredfold increase, and all of a sudden, you know, the one and a lot of the other channels are going to get a lot more viewers and people who are interested. And so maybe we all have to take our role a little more seriously um, as curators yeah, and
0: we can become... you know,
1: responsible stewards of the world, of the Tolkien world.
0: We can become hipsters like, well, I was reading Tolkien before yeah. I was in Amazon. So I had a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's
1: really the whole reason that, I, that we wanted to start this podcast is so that we can say <laughs> we were doing it before it was cool. <laughs> was uh, well, another piece of news. Um, there is a new Tolkien Society seminar coming up on July 3rd and 4th of this year. And the theme is Tolkien and Diversity and they sent out a tweet. Uh, There was a call for papers. You can send in papers through the 23rd of April. So if you uh, would want to present on a topic or have uh, some of your writings published or discussed at the seminar, they are open for submissions through the 23rd. So, you know, get out there and contribute. And um, I'm, you know, I think it's a really important topic. I'm glad they're focusing on diversity. Um, It's, you know, always been important, but now people are realizing it's important and I'm glad they're, Putting some focus on it, especially with the show coming up.
0: Yeah, I'm. I was really happy to see this as well, and I think that it's really apt timing with what's been going on in the world and in this country. And also, um, the show, the Amazon series, has such a diverse cast. I mean, it's clear that they're making a a statement with the number of people of color that they've cast in this show. So I think it's a new a new dawn for, um, for all things Tolkien. And I'm, I'm really excited uh, that it looks like it's going to be more inclusive and there's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of conversations happening around this.
1: Right. And I think you have to look no further than the comments to the Tolkien Society's post saying that they would be discussing diversity at the seminar to see evidence of why diversity is an important topic. Cause there, are, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, there is a, a, I think a relatively small, but loud corner of the Tolkien fandom that I don't know, just like there is a loud, uh, hopefully small corner of every fandom that just doesn't like the idea of talking about diversity or, you know, thinking about these issues in connection with their hobby and the thing that they like. And, um, there was some, you know, pretty ugly commentary in the comments. Um, but, uh, you know, we do think it here at this podcast, do think it is important and, you know, welcome conversations of any kind. Uh, and I think it just, you know, having those sorts of conversations just makes Tolkien that much better and the experience of talking about Tolkien that much better.
0: Absolutely. And if it if if it brings we want to bring new fans in and inclusivity is part of that, um, sharing these works with um yet unreached audiences and discussing you know if there's if there's problems and shedding a light on um topics that you know have not been discussed uh enough so yeah Yeah. this is a really good step i'm sure i'm sure
1: we'll yeah i'm sure we'll talk about this topic uh get way deeper into it in future episodes but just wanted to let people know that that opportunity is out there The seminar is coming up and if you want to participate uh clock is ticking so get out there in the next month or so and and maybe you can be a presenter. So uh, so the next topic we got going on here, and this will sort of segue into our main topic. Speaking of rumors, the theonering.net tweeted out, and this is about a month ago now, uh, they they tweeted out, pure rumors here, but if these LOTR castings pan out, this is 100, 100, 100, a show that I need to watch. <laughs> and then they had a list of actors next to character names. And I think this is total totally rumors, but some really interesting names on here. And I'm just going to jump to the one that I'm most excited about. And that is Russell Crowe as Durin. Russell Crowe is back on the menu, boys.
0: <laughs> I don't think Russell Crowe is happening. But, you know, if it did You don't happen, know that.
1: Do I don't not know that. burst my bubble. I do not know that bubbles. for
0: sure. But, it, you know, it would be exciting. I would also be excited. And it was
1: reported by the TheOneRing.net. And as we... Just talked about oh, everything they say is gospel.
0: Everything they say is gospel. No, I mean no, they said it's
1: rumors. They said it's pure rumors. They covered their, their butts on this one.
0: Um the the tweet, I'm gonna read the whole tweet. So morpheed Clark is Galadriel, Robert Arameo is Elrond, Joseph Malway is Lil' Annie, Anatar. We take that to mean Anatar. Ken Watanabe is Palando. One of the blue wizards. And Ghassan Masoud mm-hmm. is Alatar, another one of the blue wizards. Lenny Henry, Blacklock. And lastly, as Michael mentioned, Russell Crowe is Doran. So, you know, ooh, ooh. I I mean, this could be wild speculation. This could be accurate. I mean, I think Robert Arameo makes sense as Elrond, like a young hero figure. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not called. And that's been
1: kind of wild, widely reported for a while.
0: Right, yeah. So I think that makes total sense. We know that Morfyd Clark is Galadriel, and the rest remains to be seen. I think Joseph Malway has that kind of that look, that almost sinister look that Anatar or Sauron, <laughs> as we know him,
1: yeah. might yeah.
0: have. Um, yeah, you know, and
1: props to you for immediately realizing that little Annie refers to Sauron because I, you know, obviously I know that's Sauron's. You know, name when he's in his fair form is Anatar that he went by the name Anatar, you know, Lord of Gifts. I knew that, but I did I did not connect for me when they said Lil Annie did that that referred to Anatar. I had to like Google it and, and figure, and figure well, it out. Well, so I I had thought, that right away.
0: I had thought prior like he would make a great um, Sauron. Only he just has mm-hmm. that look about him, like sharp, defined features. And um, Fellowship of Fans actually posted what. I believe to be was the casting call for someone, and they're thinking this was the casting call for Anatar. So it reads The casting call reads Series regular, male, 40 to 60. This is a role for an established actor with some dramatic heft. A villain who can also evoke a deep sense of pathos and wounded, fallen nobility. Must possess a certain degree of physicality. Should seem middle aged, though must also project a sense of timelessness. Dun, dun, dun.
1: And, and for those who don't know, Joseph Maui is the actor who played Benjen Stark in Game of Thrones. So he will look familiar to you if you watch Game of Thrones. You know, he didn't, he didn't, that's not a huge role in this show. You know, he was iced out pretty early. Um, his character, you know, dies pretty early on. and That makes a very brief reemergence, you know, spoiler alert. Sorry. If you haven't watched Game of Thrones, I'm assuming you have, but um, he, he would be, he's one of the few really recognizable actors that has been attached to the show.
0: Right, yeah, he's recognizable. I thought he did a great job even though, yeah, he wasn't real prominent in that series, but um a, yeah, I'm interested to see if if this casting pans out, that would be wild. Um but we're really going to focus on two characters that are mentioned here, Palando and Alatar, uh, who happen to be the blue wizards. So, yeah. Michael's going to take us on a deep dive uh, into the blue wizards as they're referenced through the legendarium
1: yeah and i'm i'm so excited to talk about the blue wizards that they are uh, characters of mystery and i think a lot of tolkien fans are really fascinated by them because tolkien gives us so little to work with he tells us so little about them he tells us that they exist and that's basically it and we know how important wizards are i mean Sauruman and gandalf they're some of the key movers and shakers in the the Lord of the Rings. So how could there be these two other wizards that just don't appear? You know, what are they doing? where do they go? Uh, why don't they appear in the stories? And so I think a lot of Tolkien fans, or at least I am always really curious and my imagination runs wild in terms of filling in the blanks and trying to figure out how they could fit in. And so the idea that they could show up in this show is a fascinating one. Um, but if you are a Tolkien fan and have read even the extended works, you are probably wondering how they could even show up in the Second Age um, because we actually get two versions of the Blue Wizards and the most well-known version, the the, the information that we get um, in the very brief references in The Lord of the Rings and the Appendices and in The Unfinished Tales and even in The Silmarillion, all of those point to the Blue Wizards coming to Middle-earth in the Third Age with Gandalf and Saruman, not in the Second Age. So you might be wondering, how could they be in... This show that is going to be set in the Second Age, and the answer is, just to sort of cut right to the chase here, that Tolkien was always adapting his works. He was always revising and tweaking and coming up with, uh, you know, writing new essays on old characters and and uh, filling in the blanks with newish characters. And one of his last writings, that's published in uh, *People's of Middle Earth*, which you would, which is one of the um, books within the history of Middle Earth some of his last writings were about the blue wizards and he reconceptualized them. And in that version, and it's a very short essay in that version, they come over in the second age. So we're going to start from the top and tell you what is said about them in the published works, the finished works. And we'll, we'll start there and we'll we'll work our way through the the different references uh, until we get to the references in the peoples of middle earth, which is the basis for their appearance in the second age. So Jen, why don't you give us the, the reference in the Two Towers.
0: Yeah, so there's only a very brief reference in the Two Towers, um, and that references that there were five wizards. So, um, the voice of Saruman, which is page two o seven for readers of the Two Towers, uh, Saruman has been defeated in, in our
1: edition, of course.
0: In our edition, yes, um, Saruman's been defeated, and Gandalf is giving Saruman the opportunity to come down freely and willingly from his tower in Isengard, provided that he surrenders his staff and the keys to Orthanc. Here is Saruman's reply. Saruman's face grew livid, twisted with rage, and a red light was kindled in his eyes. He laughed wildly. He cried and his voice rose to a scream. Later, yes, when you also have the keys of Baradur itself, I suppose, and the crowns of seven kings, and the rods of the five wizards. So we get a reference to the five wizards there. And we're like, oh, who, who what, five wizards? I only and see... And that's
1: the first and the last reference to the five wizards. Uh, right. To the fact that there are five wizards in the entire narrative. I mean, there's literally mm-hmm. no other reference to the fact there are five wizards or... And there's no reference whatsoever to blue wizards. They're not called the blue wizards anywhere in the Lord of the Rings. Um, we, get a, we do get a second reference in the appendices. So if you look at Appendix B in Return of the King... Um, there's some discussion about the Astari and it is in that appendix, it is clear that the wizards all came in at the same time uh, around a thousand years into the third age when the darkness had fallen on Greenwood, which by the time of the Lord of the Rings is called Mirkwood. And so that's around when Dol, uh, Dol Guldur was reinhabited. So the appendices tell us that the wizards all came together. And in this passage, I'll read a very brief passage, quote, they came therefore in the shape of men that they were never young and aged, only slowly, and they had many powers of mind and hand. They revealed their true names to few, but used such names as were given to them. The two highest of this order, of whom it is said there were five, were called by the Eldar Curaner, the Man of Skill, and Mithrendir, the Great Pilgrim, but but by men in the north, Saruman and Gandalf. So in this passage, again, they just very briefly reference the fact that there were five, and it just says, of whom it is said there were five, which almost implies that it's kind of an unknown mysterious fact yeah could there be more than five so even there in the appendices it's just kind of briefly references oh there's five but doesn't even bother to mention the names or the purposes or existence of uh, either of the blue wizards
0: right exactly and we we do know that they were sent they were sent by the valar to aid middle earth in the battle against sauron we know that that's their that was their perfect purpose, um, of traveling to Middle Earth. Um, they are referenced in the Silmarillion in of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Um, it it gives us very little, but it is consistent that the wizards came, um, in the Third Age as the Shadow fell on Greenwood. Uh, basically, uh, punts on the blue wizards and says they aren't big players in the struggle. Um, so I'll just read a quick passage. So. It's talking about uh, the the wizards of these. Curinir was the eldest and came first. And after him came Mithrandir. We know that's Gandalf and Radagast and others of the Istari who went into the east of Middle Earth and do not come into these tales. So that's all so, we get uh,
1: again. <laughs> yeah, That's all we get. And and so you have to kind of piece things together, you know, in uh, in the two towers, Saruman, let's look that there's five and that's reiterated in the appendices. Um, to the return of the king. And then in the Silmarillion, they're saying, they just reference the three that we know about and say there are others of the Astari. They don't even specify. I don't think that, yeah, they don't even specify that there are two, but just that the others of the Astari went into the east of Middle-earth and do not come into these tales. So in the Silmarillion, yeah, they don't, really, they don't really matter. We really, at this point, know very, very little about the Blue Wizards, but we do start to get a little bit more. Finally, when Christopher Tolkien published The Unfinished Tales... And he published some essays that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien had written on the Astari, and that gives us a little bit more background and tells us more about who the Blue Wizards were and what their purpose were In the chapter titled The Astari, quote, Of this order, the number is unknown, but of those that came to the north of Middle earth, where there was most hope, because of the remnant of the Dunedain and of the Eldar that abode there, the chiefs were five. The first to come was one of noble mien and bearing, with raven hair and a fair voice, and he was clad in white great skill he had in works of hand and he was regarded by well nigh all even by the Eldar as the head of the order others there were also two clad in sea blue and one in earthen brown and last came one who seemed the least less tall than the others and in looks more aged gray haired and great clad and leaning on a staff and I'll stop there so we get a little bit more of the description of the Istari in general and finally that we see that there are two in sea blue so that's where we get the idea that they are the Blue Wizards. Now, earlier in this same essay, um, it is again reiterated that they came to Middle Earth in about the year one thousand of the Third Age.
0: Right, um, and it continues on in the in a in uh, unfinished tales. Of the blue, little was known in the west, and they had no name save Ithrin-luin, the blue wizards, for they had passed into the east with Curunir. But they never returned, and whether they remained in the east, pursuing there the purposes for which they were sent, or perished, or, as some hold, were ensnared by Sauron and became his servants, is not now known. But none of these chances were impossible to be, for strange indeed this may seem, the Astari, being clad in bodies of Middle-earth might even as men and elves fall away from their purposes and do evil, forgetting the good in the search for power to affect it. So... This passage is really interesting because it's talking about how they are corruptible. Um, They are so much there, even though they're very powerful. um, You know, they're they are not totally immune to being corrupted by power. And we do see that a lot in The Lord of the Rings that Gandalf struggles at times. He's really good about checking himself, but he does struggle with temptation and he fights it. Um, So I like that we get this insight.
1: Yeah. And there are a lot of other interesting passages that that we won't delve into right now, but in this chapter on the Astari, that talks about sort of their nature and the fact that when the Valar sent them over as messengers, you know, they are of the order of the Maiar, um, which, you know, they're angelic beings, but they appear as men. Now, we know that other Maiar, you know, Sauron included, could make themselves appear in different forms, in various forms, sort of like a, a raiment. They could put on like clothing uh, the, the form of an elf or a form of a man if they if they so wished, but the Astari are different. They are actually incarnate the Valar put them in bodies and so because they have been incarnated in, in the bodies of men, they can still suffer from all the same pains and hurts and weaknesses and, um, you know, cloudy judgment and all that 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 actual men do so it actually kind of powered them down a little bit. So it's it's an interesting aspect about their nature that makes them a little bit more vulnerable and susceptible to temptation um, because they lose some of their sort of angelic quality. So, you know, that's a really interesting aspect of the Astari. So one thing that I really like in this passage, one nugget is it says that they passed into the east with Curinir. And I think it's Curinir. I think there's a rolled R in there. I don't know. You have to check <laughs> in here. Mm. <laughs> Sarman purr. That see when they talk about the voice of Sarman, he's really just rolling those Rs and giving you that Latin flavor. I sp- want to do the mm. Sarman
0: voice so bad, but I I I just can't. I don't have a <laughs> deep enough voice baritone. Well,
1: see, if you just roll your Rs, you don't have to have <laughs> any kind of baritone. It's just <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm, that purr. <laughs> but. Uh, so the Blue Wizards passed into the East. So they first arrive and then they pass into the East with Kuranir to, you know, explore these sort of unknown lands. And, you know, notably Gandalf doesn't go into the East. He never he's, you know, into the East I go not, he says. And so they spend hundreds of years, the Blue Wizards and Kuranir together in the East, doing God knows what. You know, Saruman is seeking out Sauron's secrets. Who knows what they're doing over there? But Kuranir Well, this
0: may, I mean, maybe we will see this in the series. Like we're talking about all this because we might see it. We, we might see these blue wizards and what they do in the East this is such a smart choice because they have so much room we don't know J.R. Tolkien never flushed it out so they mm-hmm. can absolutely construct a narrative of their own making and take full creative license as long as it doesn't crit- contradict anything in the legendarium they can really just go hog wild with this and invent a whole storyline for these blue wizards right, if they want right. to
1: yeah, and we get a little bit more in this early version, this early conception of The Blue Wizards. And and to be clear, so the, the essay that is drawn on for The Unfinished Tales, that was written in about 1954. So Tolkien was in his 60s, and that's, you know, 50s is when The Lord of the Rings was actually published. Um, so he'd already, you know, he'd finished writing The Lord of the Rings. He had those little bits in the appendices, and then he was still t- tinkering around with it and wrote these essays. The Unfinished Tales was actually published in the 70s uh, by Christopher Tolkien, but, uh, you know, he authored these essays around the same time that the Lord of the Rings was, was actually published. And Christopher Tolkien in this chapter includes what he refers to as sort of a brief and hasty sketch of the origins of the Astari. There's a council of the Valar where the Valar resolves to send three emissaries to Middle-earth to contest the might of Sauron. And Tolkien says that during this council, only two came forward. Saruman, who was chosen by Aule, and Alatar, so one of the blue wizards, was sent by Arome, the hunter. So he's the huntsman of the Valar. And so those are the only two Maiar that, that are initially put forward, and they are the first chosen. So it's interesting that Gandalf and Radagast, two of the wizards that are sent and that we know about, weren't even among the first to be chosen or thought of. Arome selected this blue wizard, um, Alatar, right off the bat. And later in the notes, it says that Alatar's friend, Palando, joined with him so I, I love this aspect of it that Alatar was like hey I want to bring my buddy it's along. very Frodo you know, long, and Sam. Yeah well exactly I mean they're you know we don't see that among the Astari otherwise they are they have different purposes they're very individualistic but Alatar and Palin, Palando these two are buddies and they journey together and together. their fates are joined yeah.
0: Yeah and, I'd and, love and so, to see a, a friendship a strong you know friendship between yeah. And if two. so
1: if they chose to depict the blue wizards, they'd have this opportunity to have a whole different type of uh, different presentation of the Astari where there's there's a friendship between them. And maybe there's jealousy w- that emerges over time, you know, because one's more powerful than other. Alatar was chosen. Palando was, you know, the dunce, but Alatar dragged him along because he liked him. You know, maybe Alatar is perceived to be the stronger and a better choice, but uh, because they're going into the east and they have to be secretive, maybe Palando has... Uh, some qualities that end up being more important and Alatar who's perceived to be the strongest ends up being not as strong and Palando sort of saves the day. So sort of the, the underdog story, they could, they could play that out with the blue wizards. You know, I'm just shooting from the hip here, but they're interesting opportunities.
0: Yeah. I mean, so many opportunities and um, we're, I think we do have somewhat of a map um, that Michael's going to talk about of of what what they actually did um, while they were in the East, even though we don't know a play by play. We know uh, kind of generally what they were doing.
1: Right. Well, Christopher Tolkien speculates this doesn't even come from from Gerard Tolkien himself, but Christopher Tolkien speculates that maybe the reason the blue wizards were sort of destined to or decided to go into the East is because, you know, they were. Maiar of Orome. Orome, the huntsman, is the Valar that sort of explored Middle-earth the most. And he knew the farthest reaches of the map better than anybody else. And so maybe as Mayar of Orome, these two are explorers at heart that had explored the far reaches of Middle-earth with with Orome in the early days. So maybe they knew those parts of Middle-earth better than anybody else, which is why they were chosen or directed or decided to go into that part of Middle-earth. But everything that we've talked about so far doesn't answer the question. How could the Blue Wizards show up in a show about the second age when everything that we have read from Jared Tolkien says that they came in 1,000 of the third age? Everything he's written has been consistent. So how could it be that Amazon would contradict Tolkien? Well, I'm going to read now from Peoples of Middle Earth, chapter 13, which is the last writings. Now, Christopher Tolkien estimates that these essays were written uh, by Jared Tolkien in November December of 1972. So Tolkien died in September of 1973 at 81, which means that these essays wow. were written when Tolkien was, you know, within the last 12 months of his life and he was 80, 81. So, I mean, this is he was thinking you know, about the
0: blue wizards towards the end. That's significant.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I, yeah, I mean. This really was a lifelong passion. He wanted to flesh. He
0: wanted to give life to them. You know. So if Amazon does it, I mean, what a cool thing to see them brought brought to life and fully fleshed out. That would be just so fantastic.
1: Yeah. I mean, Tolkien. It wasn't just a project. It wasn't even just a passion project. It was just part of how his mind worked. He was always working out this sort of uh, this puzzle that is middle earth it's it's just a wonderful thing He created why it ended up being so great
0: yeah it's it's just um such a fully realized world and he saw himself as a sub creator you know a creator and he was so passionate about that so that yeah this is really this is really cool to see hopefully we see it come full circle
1: yeah so um, in this section, the last writings section, there are a lot of interesting topics discussed. There's an essay on Curedan, the shipwright, who we don't hear a lot about, but who is a fascinating character. We There's an essay on Glorfindel, who's also a relatively unknown character, but an awesome and fascinating character. But there's about a page and a half uh, material here about the five wizards. And I'm just going to read a passage that I think is uh, particularly interesting here. Quote, the other two, that's referring to the blue wizards. Both the other two came much earlier, at the same time probably as Glorfindel, when matters became very dangerous in the Second Age. Glorfindel was sent to aid Elrond and was, though not yet said, preeminent in the war in Eriador. But the other two Astari were sent for a different purpose. Morenitar and Romastamo, Darkness Slayer and East Helper. Their task was to circumvent Sauron, to bring help to the few tribes of men that had rebelled from Melkor worship, to stir up rebellion and after his first fall to search out his hiding in which they failed and to cause dissension and disarray among the dark East. They must have had very great influence on the history of the second age and third age in weakening and disarraying the forces of East who would both in the second and third age otherwise have outnumbered the West.
0: Ooh. Wow.
1: So a total total re uh you know reimagining of the role and fate of the blue wizards before in the unfinished tales basically his notion was that they had passed into the east and probably failed maybe they had succumbed to sauron maybe they had become you know enthralled by him maybe they had been uh, killed maybe they died Uh, but ultimately they failed that was tolkien's original version of them but now we see at the end of his life tolkien was imagining well maybe they didn't fail. Maybe, in fact, their efforts were vital to the excess, success of the West because they were sort of uh, secret agents weakening the forces of Sauron from within, stirring up dissension and disarray among the, among the ranks of the Eastern men. A totally different version I, of them, and yeah. I love it.
0: Yeah, and I think this is what we're most likely, if they are portrayed, I think this is what we're going to see is that they, are, yeah. they are going to be there trying to, you know, trying to influence people and trying to mitigate the damage that Sauron has done um among these peoples and um I I just think it's such a smart choice and I hope I I really hope that um we get not just a repeat of Gandalf, but like a totally, totally original imaginings of these characters. And since they don't have a lot to go off of, um, you know, I hope I hope they can make them distinct enough that we that we buy it and that we fall in love with these characters. Um, and right,
1: so and if the if the rumor is true, I mean, this is all just this is a rumor from the thewondering.net. I mean, it could be even less than a rumor. It could just be you know. Fan ponderings, but um, if we do see the blue wizards. So it says in the passage that I just read that they came probably at the same time as Glorfindel. Now in the prior essays in the last writings on Glorfindel, um, it is clear that Glorfindel returned to Middle Earth sometime between 1200 and 1600 of the second age. So uh, 1200 is around when Sauron was going around as Anatar, So in fair form, he was going to Linden and other places to try and seduce the Eldar. He started working with Celebrimbor to forge the rings. So it's possible that Glorfindel returned uh, around that time, um, or also potentially as late as 1600 when Sauron was revealed, uh, you know, the elves, uh, or rather Sauron forged the one ring, put it on, you know, his treachery was revealed. And Sauron basically, you know, was unmasked as the Dark Lord. Barad-dur was completed and everyone knew that, okay, we're going to have to go to war with Sauron. So it would make sense that Glorfindel would come around that time because the peoples of Middle-earth would probably have been sending pleas for help to Numenor and potentially that would have reached Valinor. And as a result of that, the Valar would hold a similar council to the one that we saw in the Unfinished Tales and say, okay, we need to send some aid. So they decide to send Glorfindel and it seems like Tolkien thinks, well, maybe the Blue Wizards went at that time as well.
0: And who do we, and now we get to speculate about who's going to play Glorfindel.
1: <laughs> I, oh man, we'll, we'll have to do a separate episode on Glorfindel because we'll he's just episode. one of the coolest characters. It's cool. So what, one thing yeah. that's interesting about this uh, later essay is they have totally different names.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Morenitar Darkness. and Romastamo.
0: Darkness Slayer. I mean, that's, that's cool.
1: Yeah, I mean he that he won the naming battle on that one, Darkness Slayer. That's so badass. As opposed to East Helper, I am a helper. <laughs>
0: that's funny.
1: <laughs> but I mean, Darkness Slayer to the extent it, it it implies anything about what they accomplish out there. I mean, this is a battle hardened Astari. So I, I would you know if we're trying to ascribe characteristics. To the different Astarii. Remember, Saruman's like a man of skill. He was one of Ali's. Maiar, so he, he liked uh, to build things. A man of craft. Well, Alatar was, uh, you know, among the peoples of Arome. He's a hunter. And we see here Darkness Slayer. He's probably like, you know, going going to do battle. He's a tough guy.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I I think this casting, back to the casting tweet, I love that they cast two people um, who you wouldn't necessarily expect if it were up to me. I'm going to throw out another really unpopular opinion. I'm sure I'll get canceled for this, but it was only a matter of time. I think you make the blue wizards female. And I'm going to tell Ooh. you why. I'm going to tell you why I'd love to see the blue wizards as female. We have so many lady... Um, there are valar that are female and i don't sure. i don't think that the val the female valar are going to be depicted anytime soon i don't think we're going to get you know these deities depicted in this upcoming series but it's clear from tolkien's works and his writings that although women are not as prominent in his works and that's obvious um, they are present and they are powerful and um and that is why I think that we need to see some of these um, characters depicted as as female who who possess some kind of magic, some kind of power that is mysterious. Uh, we can't just have like a female elf here and there. Um, I mean, from the legendarium, we have Yvanna, for example. And we have Nienna, and these are both very powerful um, deities. And so I think that since the Blue Wizards are not fully fleshed out characters, and there's a lot of room uh, for interpretation, I think it makes sense to inject uh, two more powerful female characters in the Legendarium. And this has been done successfully before and it's been done unsuccessfully i mean i think we can all agree that um the hobbit was a disaster in their invented female character but i think as long as you're not as long as you remain in the spirit of what tolkien envisioned this could really work and um
1: yeah, just write it well. I mean, that's the that's the secret. Just do a good job writing writing the characters. Do you know, a good job it, writing. It works the characters. well if you write it well.
0: And it, it wouldn't contradict yeah. any any specific characteristics about the blue wizards, you know, it, because they can be they can be wise and approachable as they're supposed to be. And um, again, I think we don't want another Gandalf like figure. We already have Gandalf, and he's already beloved. Um, so I think why
1: not? That is such a Oh my God! And that's such a brilliant idea. And I, I just did a quick flip through, you know, people's of Middle Earth, Unfinished Tales. Tolkien doesn't use any pronouns. It would in no way require doing uh, Amazon to do anything inconsistent with what was written because he does not use any male pronouns when talking about the blue wizards. So yes, absolutely, they could make them female, and um, you know nobody could complain that it's just you know woke politics screwing up Tolkien because he didn't specify whether they are male or female and uh, so they could do that absolutely, absolutely. Good yeah. catch. i i
0: i'm hoping and i'm hoping for that and i know based on the casting that just the sheer amount of of female actresses that that amazon has recruited we're definitely going to get more Uh, female characters which I'm, i'm really excited about it's high time and um yeah so that's just my two cents about what i'd like to see from the blue wizards
1: interesting idea so just a sort of uh spitball on the types of plot lines we could see so if the blue wizards are coming over between 12 and 1600 um you know and, and so they're they're probably they probably arrive if if it's around 1600 that they start boating over they're probably arriving around when the war the first war between Sauron and the elves is happening or maybe after um but we do know that ring wraiths emerge so Sauron's initially defeated and he flees into the east you know with the first conflict with the elves the numenorians come and save the day uh so Sauron has to flee into the east to sort of lick his wounds and and Build strength back up again. And that's in about 1700. So between 1700 and 1800, he's licking his wounds. In 1800, a shadow begins to fall on Numenor. That's in the Tale of Years and the appendices to the Lord of the Rings. And between 1800 and 2251, so about 450 years, Sauron is building up his arm, he's regaining strength. I think he's probably starting to interact with and ensnare the Numenoreans because in 2251 is when in the tale of years we know that the ringwraiths start to emerge. Mm. So sometime between 1700, 1800, and 2251 in that or 500 year period, Sauron's in the East. He's mobilizing, uh, gaining strength. He's corrupting the men in the East. He's strengthening his ties and his dominance over them, probably corrupting them, getting them all to get into Melkor worship. And, you know, the Numenorians are starting to explore the coasts and explore the different parts of Middle Earth. They are explorers. And so, undoubtedly, Sauron is interacting with some of them. I mean, we know that three of the ring rays are Numenorians, So, certainly, he ensnared three of them during this period. Um, now, th- we also know that that's only three. So, there are six non-Numenorians, so men of the east. So, during this time, the blue wizards are in the east trying to counteract Sauron's efforts. He's trying to, they're trying to um, mobilize the rebels in the East, those who are not being swayed or would try and resist. And they're trying to counteract Sauron's efforts. So maybe when Sauron is trying to ensnare some of the Lords, uh, sorcerers in the East, the blue wizards are there trying to undermine him and interacting with that same character. Who ultimately becomes a ring wraith. So I, I think we could see the blue wizards tied up in some sort of plot line involving Sauron's corruption and ultimate, you know, ensnaring of the ring wraiths.
0: Mm. That's that's my guess. And that would be so great to see the transformation, um, to see the because we get the ring wraiths obviously a lot in Lord of the Rings, but to see them portrayed as men um, who were slowly over time corrupted. I think that would that would again, you know, bring people in and feel feel like they have a connection to the story that's unfolding and that, oh yeah, I, I know the ring wraiths, you know, they're easily identifiable characters. So, um, another mm-hmm. another really smart uh plot point and I would personally love to see that, um to see that unfold and see how they went from um, Easterlings to to a ring wraith, what that looked like, what that yeah. what that transformation looked like, how it happened, right. how they were seduced by uh Sauron, and um was there any you know, was there any hesitancy or or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Well and we know in the various descriptions about the ring wraiths, I could see them taking the approach that the ring wraiths, the the men that ultimately become ring wraiths, that they are I wouldn't say victims, but they become a character you can empathize with and feel bad for because, you know, the reason Sauron was able to ensnare men is because they're so afraid of death. And so it could be that these Lords and men, maybe they had a corrupt intent in the first place, or maybe Sauron, you know, uh, poured honey, you know, use his honey tongue to convince them that they could use this ring to strengthen their kingdom and help their friends. Maybe they had a good intent to start out with. You know, I mean, Sauron was certainly not above that. That's what he tried to do and as Anatar with the elves. So, I think it's very possible that we could see very uh, relatable characters with good intentions that are ultimately over time corrupted and the experience of becoming a ring wraith is torturous we know that from the experience that it's it's it is i mean torturous is, is the best word and so it is not that they're enjoying being ring ringwraiths you know bilbo calls uh, the experience of having you know he's held the ring for a long time and had it for a long time he says he feels like butter scraped over too much bread right his soul is being stretched and weakened it's you know, his, his life has been elongated in an unnatural way. And so we're starting to see a, a disconnect between the Thea and the, Hero- the Hoa, the, the body and the soul. And for Ring Wraiths, that is taken to the extreme because essentially their body is no more, but their soul is is bound to the earth in an unnatural way. That's inconsistent with the purpose of men. And right. So it's torturous. And for
0: they're them. exactly. And they're denied the gift of eluvatar which is death. I mean, death is portrayed as a gift, the final resting. And um, they mm-hmm. are, they go on and they're enslaved to Sauron's will and uh, for eternity. <laughs> so. so,
1: yeah, the more, I, the more I think about it, the more I feel like the ring ringwraiths will occupy a very prominent place in the show and they will be a very big you know big plot lines will be devoted to the ring wraiths.
0: yeah that's wow i hadn't even thought about it but it's an exciting prospect to uh to see that transformation unfold yeah it, it, so here's it another theory hit me i, I
1: got another ringwraith hit related me. theory so i i you know this is this is out there okay <laughs> but we, we know that the ring wraiths are described as great lords or kings sorcerers of men the, the word sorcerer is used. I mean, the witch king of Angmar was a sorcerer. Now, I don't know what a sorcerer is exactly. It's different
0: from a wizard, <laughs> clearly, because wizards right. are Istari sent by the gods and wizards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not that. So what are they? Yeah, we, good question.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it could be just a term that people use to refer to someone who's strange and powerful. You know, maybe they don't have any actual, I, I don't want to use the word magical powers, but, you know, powers that are perceived to be magical in the, in the Tolkien universe. Maybe they don't really, maybe they're just powerful guys and mm-hmm. they're called sorcerers because they're, they're bizarre or, you know, um, Sauron was referred to as the necromancer at some point or the sorcerer of Dol Guldur. So, you know, who knows what that term means, but I'm seizing on the use of that term to suggest that maybe one or more of the ringwraiths could be the blue wizards that Sauron ensnared <gasps> and what? corrupted.
0: Mine. Blown,
1: and that, and, would... <laughs> the,
0: and the internet goes wild.
1: <laughs> and, and here's here's my theory. Here's my theory, uh, and I think it fits. It would merge the the characterization of the blue wizards from the last writings and uh, his earlier conception in the unfinished tales, because they're arriving in the second age, like he says in the last writings. Maybe they do some really important work for the first few hundred years, but then ultimately. As Tolkien originally conceived, they become ensnared by Sauron, uh, and they become corrupted. Now, how could it be that a Maiar would be corrupted, and how could he be a Ringwraith, who we know are kings of men? Well, we know that the Maiar are not just, uh, or that the Istari are not just Maiar who donned the shape of an old man as like raiment or an illusion. They're actually incarnate. (laughs) (laughs) Or woman. Uh, Yep. See, you're getting... uh, (laughs) Yeah, call me out on that. So man or woman, but they are actually incarnate in it. So they are actually men or or woman. That is actually who they are. So it's... uh, Tolkien says that the ringwraiths are great kings or sorcerers of men. It could absolutely be one of the Astari because they were incarnate in the form of men. And it would fit, you know, sorcerers... I, I think it could fit it would be a stretch I don't think they would do it but I think they could do it
0: wow wow I mean that would be really interesting to see and you're right it would be the perfect blending of uh, the blue wizards and the storyline in the second age and that would be such a smart choice to blend it all together and tie it up in a, in a neat package and see how, just how seductive Saruman can be, you know, promising power Mm -hmm. and promise he's, he's the giver of gifts, you know, and promising these things and um, how he takes down people with even the best of intentions. Um,
1: Well, and what if, what if the, Blue, one of the blue wizards became the witch king of angmar oh my gosh I mean, the most powerful
0: that would make a,
1: a sorcerer sense. who
0: has his own kingdom essentially like why is this actually, one more powerful than right. the other ones
1: and able to stand toe-to-toe with gandalf you know at, at <gasps> the gates ministereth oh my god during that battle just right
0: so much synergy happening here it all makes sense it's uh, wow uh, okay i yeah, I, I could get excited. I could get pumped about this idea, Michael. I think you're on to something.
1: Amazon, give me a call. I got some ideas give for you. God, Slip into my DMs. He's
0: an idea. Slide into your DMs. <laughs> I'm helping the elder millennial out here with the lingo. <laughs> oh, well, that was, that was an absolute blast, Michael. Thank you for that amazing, um, wild speculation. What a, what a ride. What a journey.
1: If, there, if there's one thing we do well here, it is speculate wildly. <laughs> so, I think, what do you think? Uh, you want to call it a show?
0: I think I think we're going to call it.
1: Well, friends, uh, come back to us next week. We are going to be delving into the one story that is actually fully told regarding the Second Age from The Unfinished Tales. Alderian and Arendis. One of my favorites. I'm really excited to reread it and get back into it. So
0: excited about The Mariner's Wife. I think this has endless potential to be adapted. Even if Amazon doesn't adapt it, um, they should or someone else should. And... We're going to dissect it. We're going to talk about how it could be adapted for the screen. So please do join us next time. Um, If you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, please rate us on Spotify, Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. Um, and if you want to join this conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at lotrparty or email us at watchpartylotr@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're still very new. So if you email us, you are guaranteed to get an answer. We may even read it live. So that's a little incentive for you. And... Um, Thank you so much for joining us. May the wind beneath your wings bear you to where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time.
1: will be a blue. All alone in the middle earth, just thinking about you now. Fights are on in the East to keep the people free Won't be the same for Londo if you're not here with me Will Saruman go white? He likes his crafts Red against just likes to, to hang with beasts and clans. End of the gray, now he's okay,
0: but always wondering he won't stay with me. I'll be a blue, blue, blue wizard.
1: The old roommate oh says you can't come. Stay with me till our task is done
0: Maybe I won't be a blue, blue,
1: blue wizard Maybe I won't be such a blue, blue, blue wizard